If you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is the last uh, a sermon in a four-part series, Gratitude, Worship, and Joy. And it's been an honor to carry you through this series, and I hope to culminate it and bring it to a closure uh, this morning with, with a, okay, so what, what now? Or then, how then should we live in view of these promises that have been made and promises that have been kept? We began by asking the question, what is God's will for me? And so we turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, where Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In the first week, we talked about experiencing the transformational power of the gospel produces gratitude, that when we have been rescued and forgiven and accepted by God through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, that as we grow in our understanding of this truth and the implications and the power that comes with it, that it ought to be drawing up in us a deep sense of gratitude. And we discussed that this gratitude is not merely an emotional experience where it might be sometimes where we feel grateful, but more positionally um, that we are grateful, that, that we are oriented towards the Lord out of gratitude for what he has accomplished and what he has done and what he is doing, and that when we're not experiencing gratitude or we're going through a season of discontentment and not experiencing this contentment in the Lord, that it serves as a gauge on, on our dashboard of life that helps us to realize, hey, while I ought to feel grateful, I'm currently not content. I'm ungrateful. I'm not happy. And we can look at that, and rather than run from the Lord towards created things, that's a place and an invitation for us to realign back to the Lord and saying, Lord, while I ought to be grateful, I have to admit I am not. And he is kind to carry that with us and to cover that for us. That, in turn, is actually worship. It's giving worth and value where it's due. The second week we talked about gratitude fuels Christ-centered worship as we come to the Lord with gratitude, or perhaps we're not experiencing gratitude and we come to the Lord because we're lacking. That honors God and puts worth on him and in him that he is the only one ultimately that can give us what we ultimately need. That he is the one that is in control of all things. He's the one that's worthy of our attention, of our affection, of our allegiance. That he is the one that we come back to and return to on a regular and, and Lord willing, daily basis that we find our hope and our life and our joy. And as we come and we acknowledge that, hey, we're worshipful beings, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're still a worshiper. We were made to worship, to attribute things to something or someone, our attention, our affection, our allegiance. We were created to worship. Sin disorients that worship, and Jesus Christ reorients that source of worship. And in fact, we discussed that temptation in and of itself is an invitation to worship. We either give in to the temptation and we worship the tempter, or we resist temptation and trust that God is drawing near to us and we worship the Lord who rescues us from our temptation. Last week we talked about Christ-centered worship produces Christ-centered joy. And we talked the difference between happiness and joy 
is that happiness is external and circumstantial. It's, it's seeking to change how we feel in the moment rather than the state of how we are. The reason why believers can have hope in hard circumstances and give account for the joy and the hope that we have is because we understand that God not only makes these big promises, but that God has entered into time and space, into history through his son Jesus and has kept these promises through Jesus. And that while we might not feel happy or always experience the emotion of joy, there's this undercurrent of joy that leads us to fall forward in obedience to Christ. That joy should be sought. And that joy is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We think about America and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I would say that Jesus invites us to real life, to true freedom, and the pursuit of joy. That we can have something that's eternal, that's lasting, that carries us and sustains us, even when life is inevitably hard. Friends, we have to understand, life is hard. Things don't go our way. Our bodies don't work the way that they should. Children don't obey the way that we believe they ought to even though we probably were similar in our disobedience as a child. I won't tell the kids that. We were perfect, and you should be too. And so today we're going to talk and wrap up the series, that understanding that Christ-centered joy, not just feeling, but this Christ-centered joy, compels the mission to see others experience Jesus. Christ-centered joy Joy that is meant to be found. And, and guess what? If, you're, if your joy meter is down, guess where you go? You worship the Lord. Lord, I admit, I'm not experiencing this joy that your Bible promises to give me. And instead of seeking happiness in other created things, we can reorient ourselves back to him. And we can have gratitude for the things we do have or the people in our lives or the nation that we live in. That, we have a lot to be grateful for. But if we forget the fact that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or subject to change, James 1.16. If we, if we forget that, we're going to start looking in the mirror and talk about what it is that we deserve. Dangerous spot to be. John Piper puts it this way. He says that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. When we go on, on mission, when we go share the gospel, our, our goal is to see people reorient and rightly worship their creator through the son, Jesus Christ. It's realignment of worship. We're all worshipers. It's, it's refocusing, redirecting, so that the, the, the joy that we were created to have that was robbed by sin, that was given back to us through the life, death, and resurrection of our King Jesus can be experienced so realistically in our lives that we can't help but want to see others experience that same joy. So today we are going to dig into the fact that Christ-centered joy compels the mission to see others experience Jesus. Have you ever seen someone sharing a gospel tract or evangelizing that wasn't experiencing joy or angry 
apostles, angry evangelists. I saw some of those when I was on campus at University of Houston going to college. And so this guy, I was a pretty new believer. I was about a year into my faith or so, and this guy came up to me, and he started asking me a bunch of questions. He said, what do you think the biggest problem in the world is? I said, I don't know a lot, but I think sin is a problem. So I started evangelizing the evangelist. And he's like, yeah, sin's a problem. He said, well, what do you do to deal with it? I said, I don't know a whole bunch, but I know I trust in this guy, Jesus, who lived, died, and rose again. He's God and he's man. And he started critiquing the way I articulated that because I didn't articulate it the way his script said for me to articulate it. And so I, I was perplexed. I was like, maybe God is that uptight. But that guy was not joyful. It was more like he was doing an obligation. And I remember this illustration from a book I read where the guy had talked about, he said, he said, imagine you're my wife, and my wife is here, so you don't have to imagine too much, Elijah. Uh, but, and this actually happened in, in, in our third year anniversary. I occasionally hit a home run. It was our three year anniversary, and I knew of this place that sold really cheap dozen roses. Sorry, honey. And so I went and bought three dozen roses. Now imagine I come home to you and I give you the three dozen roses and you say, oh my gosh, why did you do that? We can't afford it. And I said, because you're a severe woman. And if I didn't do this for you, uh, you would be very upset and angry. And quite honestly, I just can't handle that. I can't, totes can't do it right now. I can't handle your, your wrath. And so here, didn't do it that way. What if I said, because you have been such a joy to me that this is just a small token of, of the value and the joy and the love and the grace and the life that you bring into this relationship. And some of you ladies are like, take notes, sucker. <laughs> Fortunately, I was more on that side, maybe not as eloquent. But the reality is, the way most of us approach the Lord is the first way. Well, God, we show up to worship and we give our money and everything else because you're a mad God and we just don't. We want to avoid the consequences of angering you. When really it's like, no, he, he loves you. God is love. God created all things. God created you. God created me. God loves his creation. But God hates sin because of what we're communicating about him and what we're believing about ourselves and what we're believing about created things. And God must punish sin because he is good and he is holy and he is right. But God loves his creation. He does not love sin. Sin must be punished. So God did what we could not do and came in the flesh by sending his son Jesus who lived a sinless and perfect life and then died a death that sinners deserve as a substitute in our place. And so God never stopped being love, and God never stopped being holy or just. God was both just and the justifier in allowing his son to be crushed on the cross, being dead and buried, while he did nothing to deserve it. Jesus laid down his life so that we might have life. And fortunately, that wasn't the final say. God, in his power and his kindness, as both just and justifier, rose his son Jesus from the dead, 
defeating sin, death, and Satan. So that if any man, woman, or child, no matter your nationality or background, believes in Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven and accepted and saved. It would not be loving of God to allow sin to continue on. It would not be loving of God to allow you to go on in your sin. Once we understand that sin robs God of his glory, it robs us of our joy. It may produce short-term happiness and good feelings and sense of peace, but long-term is not life-giving. We have a tendency, though, in our sin to run from the only one that can heal us. And today, my hope is that as we reflect on God's promises in his word, that we will experience a, a transformational, consequential joy. As Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 14, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. So, so Paul, being a Jewish leader, a Pharisee, doctoral level, level theologian, saw to it that people, Jewish people who were part of the way, a part of Christianity, and non-Jewish Christians were being put to death for the lies they believed. But in turn, Paul came to realize that, in fact, he was the one that was living a lie. For as he was on a road to a place called Damascus and facing another opportunity to put believers to death, Jesus revealed himself to Paul, Hebrew name Saul, blinded him by his bright light, sending Ananias to him a few days later to declare to him the truth of what it is he saw and what it is that he now believes. He began, he began to proclaim that which he used to blaspheme against. So he's writing this, and, and this isn't just a Paul stopping in an ADHD moment, changing course in the middle of a letter to talk about how great he is. This is an opportunity for Paul to declare a contrast between the false teachers that he was just addressing to this young man named Timothy. And as he comes here, he declares his truth. I, I thank him, Jesus Christ, who gives me strength, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, not because what he was doing was faithful, but because Jesus made him faithful. Because he was made faithful, he then appointed him to his service. He redeemed that which was once disobedience, and an obedience allows him now to ride on the rails of grace and proclamation of this great news. While he was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, he hated Christians. But he says, but I received mercy. Mercy is simply not getting what you deserve. He would have been right, God would have been right to kill Saul on that road that day. But instead he rescued him. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace, the undeserved gift, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The first thing we can celebrate and understand is that Jesus covers and redeems our past and provides us with a much better future. A much better eternal future. 
Today is July 4th, 2021. On July 5th of 1995 at 1.48 a.m., during a 4th of July party, I left a party very upset. I was just turned 17 years old. I had been drinking. I got in my car. I was about to leave, and some friends stopped me and tried to block me in, and then left me alone. A few minutes later, I realized I wanted to get out of there, and I saw a way to, so I turned my car back on, and I hopped a curb, and I left. I was not yet a follower of Jesus. I'd been to church. I'd done religious stuff. If you would have asked me, I would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I didn't know Jesus. I left through a back exit, got to the back exit of a neighbor, my neighborhood and decided instead of leaving, I wanted to go home. So I started heading back on this road, going back to the other entrance of my neighborhood, and I was going very fast. As I went around this curve, all of a sudden, I see my friend John in the street with his arms up like this trying to stop me. I jerked on the wheel to try to get out of the way, and he jumped the same direction trying to get out of the way, and his body rolled up the hood of my car and smashed through my windshield. He came through so hard that it bent my steering wheel back and deployed the airbags. I was knocked unconscious. I lost control of my car. I knocked over some trees, and I landed in a tree. Next thing I remember was my friend Blake, who had been a lifeguard and who had come from my house on the other side of the small fence, the cul-de-sac, and he opened the door and started pulling me out. I started screaming, who did I hit? Who did I hit? He said, Casey, calm down. You just hit some trees. Let's get you out of the car. It may be on fire. And I kept screaming, I hit somebody. I hit somebody. Go look. And he laid me down in the grass, and he ran, and I could see him turn, look and turn around and run back towards my house. A few minutes later, my, parent, my dad jumped the fence. He got to my ear. My dad didn't turn. He said, do not say a thing. No one would tell me anything. A few minutes later, uh, police, firemen, paramedics showed up. I kept asking them if my friend was okay, and they wouldn't tell me anything. They took me to the hospital, and a little while later, I was laying in the hospital bed, and a police officer came in and said, son, I need to take your blood. There's been a fatality. A young man's been killed. At 1.48 a.m., July 5th, 1995, I killed my friend. Talk about shame, guilt, fear, despair. I killed my friend. Following that, I was put in a mental hospital on suicide watch, having struggled with anxiety and depression since I was a little kid. My friend's parents came to see me when I was in the hospital, and they had said, Casey, we want you to know that we're Christians and that we forgive you. And we don't want you to hurt yourself, and we know that John wouldn't want you to hurt yourself either. I wish I would have told you I became a Christian right then. I told him I was because I, I wanted to please. But I was quite confused. That following year, my senior year of high school, lost a lot of friends, understandably, and spent a lot of time alone. My mom bought me a student Bible, and I started reading a New Testament and realizing that, hey, Jesus didn't come for all the religious, well-behaved church kids only he came for sinners at the age of 17 Jesus saved me that wasn't my plan but he rescued me he forgave me he called me his own when everybody else was looking for ways to disown he accepted me 
One other gift he granted me that senior year of high school, and I'm not advocating high school dating necessarily, but he blessed me with my wife. Hallelujah. Been together over 25 years now. Did I face consequences? I did. I was on probation five years. Um, I started speaking as a part of my probation. But as my faith increased in Christ, I couldn't help but tell people about the joy I have experienced in being forgiven. First Timothy 1.15 says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul comments, of whom I am the foremost. He came to save sinners. Some people, if you ask, why did Jesus, well, he came to live a good life, or he came to show us the way to God, or he came to do miracles, or he came to be a good person. No, 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 no. He came to save sinners. Why? Why did we need saving? Because we were deserving of death. We were not objects of glory. We were objects of wrath. And Jesus came in our place as a substitute. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Casey, I, I don't have a story like that. You clearly messed up and needed some saving. Well, uh, maybe so. But I would say that that was just an outward display, a very public sin, mistake, error, culmination of much sin. But there was a bunch before then, and sadly, there's been more than I can count since then. Jesus came to save sinners. Not to celebrate the saints, not to say, keep doing what you're doing, but to save sinners. To rescue people who are at odds with God, people whose hearts and lives are directed away from God, to go after people who do not fear or honor God. He came for those people. He didn't come to make good people better. He didn't come to make Democrats Republicans or Republicans Democrats. He didn't come to make America great again. Jesus came to save sinners. And we use them for a lot of other stuff, don't we? But we look at the brass tacks that, hey, he, he came to save sinners, this is trustworthy. This is full acceptance. You can go all in on this hand. I don't know about you. I needed to be saved. I still need saving. I will ultimately need it. Because even on my best day, I then congratulate myself for my best day, which is pride. I'm probably sinning in some way right now. I care about what you're thinking. I care if you're sleeping. I don't blame you. The buttery voice does it to many. He came to save sinners. Yet, it seems to me that we're more about screaming about everything we're against rather than proclaiming what we are for. But I'm not that bad, you might be thinking. Have you ever wanted, pursued, loved anything more than you have God, then you're guilty. Have you ever worshipped something created or longed for that created thing or hoped in a trinket or a rabbit's foot? Disgusting, if you think about it. A chopped off animal foot for good luck. If you're young, don't understand. If you still do, ew. 
Do you hope in that scratch off to be the very thing that's going to change your life for the better? Or that bank account, or that hand, or that stock, or that thing. You make it into a God, a graven image. Have you ever used God's name inappropriately? Have you ever skipped a Sabbath or not taken regular breaks of rest to be able to recharge and trust that the Lord, who is sovereign, requires us to rest, to trust that he is still at work on our behalf? I have. If you have, you're guilty. You ever dishonored your parents? Guilty. You ever murdered someone? Well, some of you are like, whoa, But Jesus says if you look at anger with another person, you're committing murder. You're guilty. No adultery. Jesus says if you ever look at another person with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. You're guilty. You ever stolen anything? Taken without? Borrowed your parents' socks without asking? I'm kidding. I'm just still a little bitter about those type of things. Have you ever taken? You're guilty. Have you ever gossiped and embellished about someone else, maybe slandered their name or put something in a light that made yourself look better and them worse? You're guilty. Have you ever wished that your husband was more like that husband or that wife more like that wife? Have you ever wanted something that your neighbor had or the house that they had or the things that they had or the hope that they had or whatever so much so that you're willing to ignore all things just to pursue it? You're guilty. I don't know about you, but guilty, 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 guilty. Well, I'm not that bad. How much bad tarnishes a perfect good? I won't give the youth camp example that I heard this preacher use one time, but he said, how much of a disgusting thing would you want in your brownie mix before you would need it? You can fill in the gap. What's something that's disgusting that maybe you pick out, out of a litter box or a backyard? How much of it do you want in a brownie mix? Now, some of you are disgusting. You're like, I don't know. If you can't taste it, what's the harm? <laughs> we'll pray for you. The rest of you non-nasty people. We, we, we give permission to things that we enjoy while we bring judgment to those who do things that we don't enjoy. And quite honestly, we're missing, we're, we're refocusing in the wrong place. It doesn't mean we bury your head in the sand. It means that, hey, our orientation is towards the Lord. The Lord is the standard, not what everybody else is doing. The Lord. And guess what? We fall short. That's why Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And if that doesn't currently produce gratitude, I'm not going to shame you or guilt you. I'm just going to say, hey, your heart's off. Go to the Lord. Lord, I know I should be grateful. I'm not. So if you could slap some backyard pool on top of that, you can tell what's on my mind. Pool in my backyard. Or this item or that item or this good or that good. You're good, but if also, you're guilty. So we come with this guilt that can produce shame, that can disorient us, and I'm not trying to make light of it. It's very significant. 
But, but the shame and the guilt that we experience, the, the, the wrath that we are deserving is equal amongst all of us. And if you want to vary, well, I'm not as bad as that person, that's not the standard. The Lord and his holiness is a standard, and we, we fall short. But he saves us. And he goes on to say this, but I receive mercy, verse 16, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, he's talking about the worst kind of sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Hey, maybe his work in you isn't just so that you feel better. Maybe his work in you so that other people who need him as well can see it and experience hope and believe that maybe there, maybe there is a way that he would forgive you. Let me, let me jump to the chase. He will. Confessing our sin is just agreeing to what he already acknowledges, knows, and sees. It's not coming to terms with. It's not saying, God, I've been lying to you this whole time. This is he knows. It's you aligning saying, God, I know. I, I, I am more than I even see. Lord, I need rescue. Save me, God. And he's kind and he does so, but he doesn't just do it so you have life insurance, eternal life insurance to go to heaven later. He does so so that you actually have a story to tell and that you are not your own and that your life is an illustration. And quite honestly, if you're a church kid, you grew up in the church and you're like, I never had anything like Casey had. Golly, how am I going to save anybody? Well, first of all, you don't save anybody. Christ does. Number two, what's more miraculous that I gave into my flesh and it ended in destruction? Or that maybe some of you haven't, by God's mercy alone and his grace, and has preserved you from maybe going down those paths? That's a testimony. Not one to be like, well, I'm just well-disciplined. Well, who made you? God. So with that in mind, we have a story to tell that isn't our own. We have a Jesus to worship that sustain us when we don't feel it or, or want it. We have a God that welcomes us back when we stray or get misaligned, when we pursue things that aren't honoring to him. We have a God that gives good gifts beyond just, just the daily needs of the daily bread, which are great gifts. You have a Father in heaven who wants to bless you, and the greatest blessing he has ever given is himself. So that in Christ alone, we can be redeemed and renewed that our brokenness and compulsivities and sin of commission and sin of omission, if you want to slice that out, we can have a cup of coffee sometime. But all of that going on ultimately becomes the target of his grace so that as you are free and liberated from the consequences of your sin, you now have a story to proclaim that is even bigger than you. And as we experience that transformational grace, we have the authority by which to open our mouths. And as one pastor I heard says it this way, and let eternity come out. Yeah, it's a good one. Write it down. I stole it. Pastor Neil McClendon. That's his name. So when you tweet it or whatever later, McClendon, Pastor Neil McClendon. When you open your mouth, allow eternity to pour out. We have, a good, we have good news. Even when things get real bad, we have good news. I read an article of a pastor who was on a plane that was going down for an emergency landing this past week. 
In the last 30 seconds, he got up and shared the gospel. Turns out the emergency was more common than he knew about, but people were screaming and crying and hollering, and he shared the gospel. And he said after people got off the plane, they went back to watching their Netflix and doing their thing. So he said, but my job was to sow the seed and hopefully someone else will water it because God will bring the harvest. The good news is that we have a story to tell and we live in a place where people need to hear it just like we did. What if our salvation isn't just for us? The third thing we see is that Jesus saves us and uses our story as an illustration for his story. He uses it in the lives of our kids. And parents, the biggest thing, because I, I don't know about you, I can get pretty unchristian around my kids sometimes. Anyone else? Not always on 100%? Thank you. Anybody else going to be honest and confess? You lose your Jesus on your kids ever? One of the greatest gifts we can give our kids is our own brokenness in, in apology and modeling repentance to the Lord and to them. Right? So that we can model and say, like, look, I was wrong. One of the biggest things as I walk with adults and coach them is that when they had parents who would never admit they were wrong, it was very disorienting for them. And that made it difficult for them to own their own stuff before the Lord and before their wife and before their kids. The invitation of Christ is we're able to come and say, man, I blew it. I'm sorry. I need God. You need God. We need God. Let's, let's try again and figure it out. And Paul ends this way, and this is how we're going to end this morning. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ-centered joy compels the mission to see other people experience Jesus. We want to see people come to worship Jesus. We want to see people's lives transformed by Jesus. And as we begin the practice of being grateful for the fact that we are known by Jesus, we are loved by Jesus, we are forgiven by Jesus, we are accepted by Jesus, and we are saved by Jesus, and that becomes a reality in our souls. And that gratitude compels us to want to know our Savior more and to build that relationship with Him and with His people and then produces in us this, this hope and this joy that surpasses our understanding at times that carries us and sustains us. The overflow of that joy may be an opportunity to, for us to proclaim the gospel. John Piper once asked his dad, Dad, what do you do when you're not desiring God? And his dad, who was an evangelist, says he goes and shares the gospel. Because the joy he has isn't just the feeling. The joy he has is lasting. We have to engage it and know it, that even in our suffering, in our sorrow, even in our grief, there's a joy that's been granted to you and I through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace given to us through your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that while we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And God, we, we come as, as united people with a common need of forgiveness. And Lord, that, that it's easy for us to point out the flaws in others, especially the sins that we don't personally struggle with. But Lord, we also need to remember that without the solution of Christ himself, we too would be in the same, very same spot. And Lord, there are sins that we really love, that we are friends with, we're at home with, 
that are deeply embedded. And God, we ask that, that by your grace, you would continue to free us, Lord, from the bondage that we have. That by your grace, we can be new people and, and changed. Lord, I pray for any follower of Jesus today that's here that's struggling, Lord. I pray that they would grasp on to the hope that we have in Christ. I pray for any man, woman, or child that is here this morning that doesn't yet know Jesus. Oh God, that you would let them know that while they were sinners, Jesus died for them so that they might know him and trust him and love him and follow him. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are striving forward in faith. We all have our stuff, Lord. We all have our areas of brokenness. We all have our stories. And we thank you that you haven't given up on us. Keep us and use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.